This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Stan Grant, welcome to Better Reading. Lovely to be with you. I've just found out that Stan's a fan of the Better Reading oh, podcast. Big, yeah, big, big fan. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I love, you know, I'm, I'm such a, a voracious reader that you know how they approach their books and the ideas behind their books and love the conversations you have. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, well, I'm thrilled. I'm so excited. Okay. So, Stan, let me introduce him. He's a Wiradjuri um, and a Gamaliroi man. Is that right? If I've got my pronunciations right? Close enough. Close enough, sister. Okay. It's, it's, we're we're, we're and Gamaliroi, but you, yeah, know, yeah. You, have to, you have to grow up speaking it, you know, to, uh, to, to get your mouth around that. Uh, he's one of Australia's most respected and awarded journalists. In 2015, he published his best-selling book, Talking to My Country, which won the Walkley Book Award, and he also won the Walkley Award for his coverage of Indigenous affairs. Stan is one of our foremost observers and chroniclers of the world in crisis. His latest book, With the Falling of the Dusk, is a deeply powerful, poetic and compelling read, and it really is, Stan. It's, oh, it's thank kind you. It's, it's, it was so meaningful to me mm. about the challenges facing our world, weaving his personal experience of reporting from the front lines together with his deep understanding of politics, history and philosophy. He explores what is driving the world to crisis and how it might need to be averted. And a really big topical subject, right? Mm. Yeah, big one. And, you know, look, you'd appreciate this, Cheryl, because you're coming from the same side of history as me, right? I mean, I'm someone who's gone out into the world as someone who is in the West but not of the West. You and I, our, our ancestors, our family connections come from the other side of history, if you like. You know, and if, mm-hmm. if the idea of the West is the, the liberty and rights of individuals, if it is tied to endless progress, if it is a linear arc of history, um, this idea that history bends to justice, this idea that you reach an end of history, as Hegel said, then for people like you and I, Chinese people, um, Afghan people, Iraqi people, Pakistani people, North Korean people, you know, African people, people that I have spent my life reporting on, we don't come from that history. That history landed on us. You know, the idea of the West was transported in colonisation and empire and at, at the point of a gun. So I wanted to walk that fault line, if you like, between that idea of universal Western liberalism. It's, you know, what it, what it brings to the world. It's, you know, it's, it's great virtues, but also the deep troubling legacy of that and where we're seeing that friction and that blowback against West, the ideas and assumptions of universal Western liberalism. And I do that through the, the stories that I've told over the years, but also a deep dive into philosophy and history and politics and ideas that have helped shape our world. 
I want to talk about COVID and this is something that I've been thinking about lately and and, and I know you've given it a little bit of thought too. Why mm. some cultures have been more compliant than others? What mm. is this? And particularly yeah, in Australia, know, I've just, I've been so surprised mm. at how compliant we are. Oh, we're very, we're very compliant and that can, Why? that can be a virtue. You know, we can, we can put aside our individual liberty or our personal desires for a common good and I think in certain circumstances that can be a virtue. In other ways, and I think history bears this out, a willingness to acquiesce, a, a compliance without question can also lead to tyranny. Now, I'm not going to say that we're going to, you know, we're on the road to tyranny in Australia because we, you know, sacrificed our freedom and, and acquiesced to, to what was quite a strict lockdown. But, but I do say, I think, that liberal democracy per se, with its ideas of liberty and freedom, has really been challenged by COVID. And, and the great bastions of liberal democracy, like the UK and the US, have failed that test because of some of the issues within their own country, the way they're governed, um, the types of people who have governed them during this crisis, but also the deep-seated legacy of, of race and class that means that those who are most vulnerable are those who will suffer the most as well. I think Australia managed to, um, to endure the worst of this and come out the other side because we're, we are reasonably well-governed. The states and the federal government can come together in a moment of crisis, and we saw that. We're a very rich country. We're an isolated country, and all of those things buttressed the worst of coronavirus. But I do think, as Bernard-Henri Lévy, the French philosopher, said, you know, a, a pandemic is a, a social phenomenon with a medical aspect. And I think COVID has revealed and accelerated quite troubling phenomena within our world, our, within our own societies, that fault line between authoritarianism and liberalism, the fragility of freedom, and the belief in progress uh, and interconnectedness and globalisation that will deliver us to a greater future. Of course, during COVID, the opposite was true. The ability to shut down behind our borders got us to the other side. So I think mm. COVID revealed a lot about our age, and I, I write about that. Yeah. I want to talk about freedom, right? Big subject, mm. I know. But in relation to what's happening now, the interpretation of freedom. So, and going back to COVID and compliance, yeah. I feel sometimes in this country we live in a police state. You know, yes, so do I. Do you yeah. talking to an Indigenous person here. <laughs> yeah. um, I grew up in a police state. My mm. family was told where we could live, who we could marry, whether we could keep our children. My people who were not even three, you know, 3% of the population were almost or a third now or more of the prison population. Um, you know, I, I drive down the street and I see police on every corner, armed police, armed in ways that in many other parts of the world they are not. Um, China, for instance, when I live there, the, the UK, for instance, who are not armed like we are, police pulling people over and questioning them with the assumption of all of that authority and, you know, Anecdotally, when I, I can see when I drive by those people, they are, to my eyes, more often than not, people of colour. Mm. And uh, so I think I, I absolutely do agree with you. And I think it is a, a long overdue discussion in this country about the level of our policing and the, you know, the force of that, rather than being a service to us, 
It is a force. You know, you know so what about those signs you see on the, on the road? If you speed, you will get caught. We are watching you. It's becoming science. I know, and they're more dictatorial. And also, too, when you refer to your people, but even my people, when you see young Arabs in fast yes. cars, you know, yes. they are going to be pulled over for no reason. Yes. This is a white that person. Is true. You that know, is we true. see that all the time. But getting back to freedom, what I've noticed too, and this is culturally and, and, and something I've been thinking about more and more um, during COVID, when you think about Americans, for example, and just broadly Americans, freedom is about the individual. Yeah. It's not about community, is it? Because no, no, it's not. if I have the freedom to carry a gun and I shoot you, that's not your freedom, is it? No. And, and you know, it, it goes to the sort of paradox of the West. What the West offers in this sort of post-Enlightenment West, the last 300 years of the West, is it offers you freedom from all the chains that may, may bind you or tie you down. It, you are not bound to hierarchy or to aristocracy or to bureaucracy or to faith or to family, or to country. You know, you can go and reinvent yourself. Um, there is the rights of the individual are greater than the rights of the community. And, you know, if, if you look at the West, that extraordinary explosion of ideas and science and philosophy and economy that did transform our world has given us the, the capacity to have these conversations that we're having today. But we also know that it leads to alienation, horrific damage to our environment, mm. the destruction of cultures, slavery, colonisation, of which we do not recover in 100 years, 200 years, 400 years, you know, where, where your family comes from, the Middle East. Borders drawn by foreign powers, despotic regimes imposed and propped up by liberal democracies supporting these despots. There is a dark side to modernity. And, and I live with all of the struggle of that, Cheryl. Um, I, I embrace the liberating ideas of the West, but I am also a product of the devastating cost that that has wrought on so many peoples. Mm, it is terrible. Mm. I'm, I'm following the line of freedom, and I want to talk about journalism, particularly yeah. in this country. What the hell is going on? Yeah, look, I mean... AFP rating journalists, mm -hmm. AFP rating the ABC. What direction yeah. are we going in? Well, you know, a lot of this comes, again, and I, I, while we give up our freedom during COVID for what may be a commitment to a common good, do you get that freedom back? And I connect mm -hmm. what we're seeing now with what we saw after 9-11, when, again, in the guise of fighting terrorism there were so many restrictions placed on us, the increasing surveillance of the state, the imposition of limits on media freedom. And we're seeing this all around the world. You know, part of the erosion of democracy in our world is that we are loosening our grip on the soft guardrails of democracy, the independence of the judiciary, the freedom of the media. You know, when you surrender to the heavy hand of the state, then you are not anymore a liberal democracy. You are very close to an autocratic regime. And, you know, media in Australia is a reflection of that, probably not to the ex same extent that we see in other parts of the world, but there has been a war around the world on freedom of the media and journalists. More journalists killed, more journalists locked up, greater laws 
imposed on journalists to curb journalistic freedom, and all of it under the guise of protecting us or the security of the state or the general public's well-being or whatever. Under that guise, they can shut down our right to know and our right to speak. So how do you think then that affects, because what you're talking about here is that we're at a crossroads, you know. I mean, is democracy working? Where are we going? I mean, we're heading, we're seeing more and more autocracies or heading toward Mm -hmm. autocracies. Is it that one system is broken and we're trying to figure out another? Where are we at? I think it's a combination of both. I think there is certainly a real challenge to liberal democracy and that most obviously comes in the form of China. When you have an authoritarian regime, increasingly authoritarian under Xi Jinping, that is also the biggest engine of economic growth in the world and on track to become the biggest economy in the world, we arrive at an inflection point for the first time in 300 years, the biggest power economically and ergo other powers that come with that, will be a non-Western country. And I think that that, there there is an element of of white panic or white fear, Western fear about the rise of China and what this means. And we're seeing that taking a real deep hold. So there is that existential moment of the rise of an authoritarian power that can take the best of market liberalism to suit its purposes, but reject the freedoms that we thought came hand in hand with that. At the same time, there is this weakening of democracy from within, liberalism that has failed to live up to its own tests. It cannot deal with the legacy of racism, sexism, gross inequalities. I mean, the inequalities of the United States, where in the final three years of the Obama administration, an administration that came, you know, to power offering great hope and this would be the moment when we, you know, we cooled the oceans and we wound back the damage to our environment and we moved to a post-racial America Black Lives Matter started under the Obama watch. In the last three years of the Obama administration, life expectancy in the United States decreased for the first time in 100 years. Um, White people who had been left behind, their factories closed down, their children with no hope, no future in the grip of an opioid epidemic and a gun violence epidemic, increasing numbers of suicide, who then turned to a demagogue like Trump because they just want to stick two fingers up at the system because their anger is all they have left. I think when liberalism fails the test of liberty and egalitarianism and equality, when you see the entrenched racism, sexism, class-based inequalities, um, people lose faith in it. So we have a a, a moment of, of existential threat in the rise of China and a weakening of democracy within democracies themselves. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I want to go back to the Obama years, and I just want to make this observation, and I'm a little bit biased here because I do have a, a monumental crush on the man. <laughs> what I want There's to a say, lot to admire. There is. And, do you know, I think some of it might have been timing right? Mm. Because I think it was a black president who really was walking into an established system, right? And then you look at the crazy white president that walked in after him and broke all the rules. I think if Obama was to come now, it would be a totally different president. Do you Mm. agree with that? Do you think that there's some truth in that? I I struggle with Obama and I struggle with the Obama legacy. I'm, like everyone, attracted to the civility and sophistication of the man, increasingly a rare quality amongst our political leaders. The, you know, the, the dignity um, that with which he graced the office. But, but, you know, Cheryl, he left the world in a terrible state. He did because um, they know, inherited so many problems. I, I, I see a cycle. But, but Her- the but GFC. Cheryl, but, Cheryl, he, he, he made a choice and yeah. he said to the bankers, I am what's standing between you and the pitchforks. And he employed the bankers from Goldman Sachs as his, as his economic advisors. No banker went to jail. No banker lost their job. The bankers were back earning their bonuses within a year or so. People lost their homes. People grew angrier. Black Lives Matter started under his watch. He mm. did not speak about race. In fact, he ran from race. Remember in the... Um, in the lead-up election when he repudiated Jeremiah, was it Jeremiah Wright, his, his pastor, who, who, who gave a sermon damning America, and he condemned him. Every time he spoke about race, he was slapped down until in the end he barely spoke about it at all. He remember, remember he said, there is no white America or black America, there is just mm. the United States of America. Well, I'm sorry, there is a mm. black America, and that black America was hurting. I'm, I'm more lean to the... Cornell West view of the Obama presidency that it was for all of its hope and all of his dignity and grace and civility, just an extension of another neoliberal presidency. Well, and- I think I think you're right, but I think it's because there is an established system that really yes. only broke with Trump. And I think if he was to come after that, you know, I look at Biden and Jill Biden and the fact that Jill Biden has decided to work, the first first lady that has decided to keep a full-time job, Michelle Obama would not have had that privilege of making that that choice because she, the expectations on yeah. her were very different to say Jill Biden post-Trump. I, I, I think it depends on what your starting point is with America. My starting point is with America is it's built off the back of slaves. Yes. It's built on the genocide of, of First Nations people. It is a grossly in, unequal society. Yes, it has taken the poor, sick, huddled masses of the world, but often consigned them to the lowest rungs of that society to all the filthy jobs that no one else will do. And they never climb out of that, despite the promise of the American dream. They never do. Very, very rarely. And in some ways, I see the Trump presidency as revealing a very deep, dark truth about the country, that that's who the country is, that racism is built in, and those people who stormed the Capitol building are what the 
the face of America looks like and those 74 million people who voted for him at the last election are who America is. And it's in a battle with its own soul. You know, it's the, um, this is Lincoln said, you know, it's that battle with the, with the better angels of their nature and the darker demons often win. And then when it comes to race, I cannot get past it. America is just built on, on racism and exploitation and genocide and slavery. And in the words of, of James Baldwin, that white America to, to people of colour, to black Americans, to Native Americans, it, it, has, it has the meaningless of a hollow drum and the stench of slow death. That's what Baldwin saw, and I still think that's the case. And I don't think Obama, uh, he certainly didn't change that. Um, and I, don't, I think it may have been beyond him to try to. I think this, that is baked in. Mm. I just want to say this too, like, and I, and I know that that you st- try and stay politically neutral, but I have noticed a cycle that, like, you know, Obama inherited the GFC and Biden's yeah. inherited the mess of Trump. Yeah. You know, that the Democrats are always there to fix something that's been very, very broken. Yeah, F- F- FDR, of course. You know, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, and 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 to some extent, the same thing applies here. It does. You know, that the massive reforms have really set up thirty years of prosperity course, off the back of, of China's expansion as well that sort of helped us. But I think there is something to that because progressive parties are the, people, are the parties of change uh, or reform and the conservative parties are the parties of the status quo. And at various times in our history, both of those things are sort of necessary. Remember during World War II, of course, it was, it was Curtin that we turned to. And so, yeah, I, I think there is something to that, Cheryl. I think there's definitely something to that. I want to talk about the women's movement, and, and mainly because it's so topical at the moment. You know, I feel as though sometimes, even though Me Too movement happened a few years ago, and I, I, I really truly thought at the time that that was having a domino effect globally. But mm. when I look at what's happening now in Australia, I think maybe not. Maybe that didn't happen. Yeah. You know, I, I think there is th- – these movements are very different, and, and I, I recoil – when I see people try to make these connections. You know, I've seen people try to say that the movement here with women is part of a global trend and it's part of Black Lives Matter. They are not. They are so fundamentally different. But I will say this, that the questions that the Black Lives Matter movement are asking, the questions that the women's movement are asking, the questions that the rights of refugees are asking, questions about our immigration policy, questions about inequality, all of these questions are putting demands on liberal democracy that liberal democracies are failing to answer. It's not acceptable that half of our population should live in a society dominated by men with all of the historic and and contemporary brutality that that involves. Mm -hmm. And that should not be a debate. And it should not be up for debate that Aboriginal people should die 10 years younger and be than the rest of the population and be the most impoverished and imprisoned people in the country, or that African-Americans are not owed reparations for slavery, or that they should not be the most impoverished and imprisoned people there, that there is a debt to be, debt to be paid for colonisation and empire. And if liberal democracy cannot deal with the legacy of that history, then it will fracture and it will die. And I think the downside of that is that that leads to a political tribalism and an identity politics that also erodes the sort of civilising aspects 
of, a, of, of liberal democracy, that we can put aside those differences. But when those differences define you in the face of entrenched historic and contemporary oppression, then of course people are going to coalesce around identity groups. And the biggest identity of all are white privileged men. They are the biggest identity of all. So I think we're asking really deep questions of liberal democracy in this movement with women here, albeit I have some reservations because it is still primarily a movement that privileges white middle-class women who are the faces of it and who are the voices of it. And we weren't raising the same concerns for, uh, for generations of black women or poor white women or migrant or refugee women. But there's everything has a moment and this may lead to a more capacious movement and it may bring those other voices to the fore, and I, and I hope so. But I think it is part of a deep test to the endemic structures of liberal democracy with all of its inherited race, class and gender privilege. I was speaking with Isabella Lunde the other day, you know, the author, and I, mm. she's written a, a beautiful little uh, non-fiction piece on, on feminism. And I asked her what feminism meant to her. And she said, it is all of those that don't fit in the patriarchy. Yeah. Well, that's more than 50-50, right? Oh, of course. That's, that's 90%, probably 10%. And we are having a debate about, you know, men getting out of the way, of course. Mm. But, you know, this is, we are slow to change. And um, these moments, I just hope that these moments and these movements lead to something more than just quotas more representation, more redistribution of wealth, more uh, laws against anti-discrimination. I hope it leads to something fundamentally more than that because I don't think redistribution or quotas in parliament or, or, or better anti-discrimination laws or I don't think those things are enough. I think there is a, a moment here of much deeper structural change where liberal Western democratic ideas and capitalism has to go through a deep, deep sense of crisis and change. Because without it, we're going to change the faces, we're going to make things a bit more comfortable, but we will embed the same tyrannies that we've lived with. Do you think we're up for it? Well, if we're not, it will go. I mean, that, that's, that's really, I think, where I arrive at in the book. And, you know, Hegel's idea that the owl of Minerva spreads its wings with the falling of the dust that we gain wisdom as with the nightfall. Well, with the rise of China, the Trump years, the COVID crisis, the unravelling of all of those things, I think we are at the, at the falling of the dust. And if we don't change those things, then I think um, it can go. Political systems can fall. You know, the Soviet Union fell because it was hollowed out and decrepit from the inside. And liberal democracy right now, after Freedom House, that measures 15 straight years now of declining freedom and democracy in the world, there are the increasing autocrats and strongmen, and if we can't deal with that, then absolutely it can go. It, and there is a real moment here of, of threat and challenge and crisis, but also potentially opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm, absolutely. I want to, a little bit about you because you're familiar with this podcast and I always ask about writing. So you're a journalist and a long-form writer. Yeah. Okay. And, and writing, look, writing is really what I do, Cheryl. I mean, even TV journalism, I always put the writing first. The writing was the most important thing to me. Writing articles, I write, you know, for ABC Online all the time. I've, I've got two books coming out now, this one and, and another Writers on Writers book with Tom, about Tom Keneally. Um, I'm oh, I love Tom. Yeah, yeah. I'm working I on just... a novel. 
right now. And look, writing's really, if I was asked to describe myself, it would be writer and everything else, you know, comes When up. did that come to you though? Uh, always. Always, always, I think. Yeah, I've always, when I was a kid, you know, I read voraciously and I wrote all the time. And as I say, you know, I've written, I've worked in all forms of journalism, but the writing has always been the most important part of it for me. Storytelling from way back. Did you think yeah. you were going to be a writer as a kid? You know, I think I probably did. I certainly knew I was going to be a storyteller because I was surrounded by stories. My mother and my father and my grandparents, and they were all deep, deep storytellers. So I thought I, I, I thought I would be, yeah. I spoke to, I don't know if you know him, but um, he's a writer from Tasmania, Adam Thompson, an Aboriginal fellow, and he's written his first book, A Collection of Short Stories. And if you haven't come across it yet, right. please do. Yeah, I'll have to. It is magnificent. And I said, I think, I don't know how old he is, but maybe he's in his 40s. And I said to him, why is it you didn't put pen to paper until now? Why is it that we're just hearing from you now? He said, Cheryl, I've been telling stories all my life. All my life. You all know, my life. <laughs> my, my great-grandfather was known as the storyteller of Wiradjuri mm. people. Um, my mother wrote short stories and poems, and I grew up around great oral storytellers. You know, I thought up stories in my head. I, I, you know, I think there's nothing else. It's the only thing I could do in, in a sense. It's, it's all I do, read and think and write and, and compose stories and think of ideas constantly, 24-7. Yeah. And we'll finish on this note, but you know, and 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 I'm sure you had a similar experience. But growing up, I was always, particularly when I was little, I was so aware of my difference, and I yeah. wanted to be white. I wanted to be called Belinda, yeah. or I wanted to be called Jane, or I wanted yeah. to be, you know, have blonde hair, and I wanted all of that. And my parents were so so. Australian Lebanese, you know, you know, we yeah. we took Lebanese bread and falafel sandwiches, and <laughs> you know, they were proud, loud and proud yeah. with it, right? Now, when I grew older, I became loud and proud with it, yeah. and now I feel that it is infinitely lucky that I have that diversity. Do you feel the same? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm 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 very fortunate to have been born into my culture and yeah. the strength that comes from that culture, and also someone who's who's lived in the world and shared other cultures. And um, I know I think the idea that there is only one way to think. I think the I think the universalism and the assumptions of that that accompany liberalism and its attachment to whiteness is really its Achilles heel, because there are other ways of living and and human flourishing and being happy. And other other cultures, and you know, so I think I'm fortunate to come from that. And like you were, when I was a kid, I wanted to be like everybody else. I didn't want to have dark skin. I didn't want to be the only dark kid in the class. I didn't want to be teased. And but but I'm I'm very proud to come from that, and it anchors me. And, it, and you know, I look through the eyes of a Wiradjuri Gamoroi person, and I look onto the world with all of that history. And and it gives us a story, Cheryl. You and I have a story. Have a story to to speak back to the world. Mm. I've always listened to you and, and you know, just through television and, and through your writing, and I've always felt this affinity with you. I don't, I don't know why, but I think oh, we, maybe... Oh, we come, we come from the same side of history, system. <laughs> we know? do. That's, that's what we do, yeah. We do. Stan Grant, I, it's just been an honour and a privilege. Thank you so much. Oh, anytime, Cheryl. It's been a real real privilege for me. I'll, I'll listen back to this because I listen to everything you do. <laughs> okay. You take care, mate. Good on you. Bye-bye. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. 
Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.